Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Adam Forestein. I'm Damian Garde. Meg Trail is off this week. It is Thursday, March 18th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First, as a crisis of confidence unfolding in Europe, with more and more countries suspending the use of AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vaccine. We'll talk to Dr. Allison Buttenheim, a University of Pennsylvania professor who studies vaccine acceptance, about the ongoing saga. Next, Eli Lilly made headlines around the world with data on a new treatment for Alzheimer's disease. We'll discuss the promising results and why many experts are skeptical about their implications. And finally, I have a modest proposal for biotechs disclosing clinical trial results. Do better. We'll explain. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley from STAT. I'm here with Chris Banco, the CEO of Conexa, a software company that powers patient-centric research. Chris, why do you think that digital biomarkers haven't been more widely adopted? Is it the regulators or is it the biopharma industry? Thanks, Angus. There's no question that the FDA is encouraging technology innovation and that they believe the evidence that digital biomarkers will provide researchers faster and better answers. The problem is that pharma can be a cautious industry. However, we can learn from the history of change management that was required for the adoption of molecular imaging and fluid biomarkers. But we can't let a fear of change hold us back from innovation that can save lives. For more information on Conexa, visit ConexaHealth.com. That's K-O-N-E-K-S-A Health.com. One of the world's most widely used COVID-19 vaccines is in crisis. So over the past week, we've seen a domino effect in Europe with country after country hitting pause on the administration of AstraZeneca's vaccine. The concern stems from a small number of cases of serious blood clotting, which have not been definitively linked to the vaccine and don't appear to be more frequent than what's seen in the general population. On March 18th, the European Medicines Agency found the vaccine to be safe and effective and said that vaccinations can resume. But there's a risk that this whole stop and start vaccine rollout has done irreparable damage to public perception of AstraZeneca's product, which of course could have serious repercussions for the effort to end the pandemic. To discuss this issue, we sat down with Dr. Allison Buttenheim, an associate professor of nursing and health policy at the University of Pennsylvania, whose research focuses on vaccine acceptance. I should note, we recorded this interview before the European Medicines Agency cleared the vaccine. Allison, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So, Allison, let's start with the big picture. What was your immediate reaction when you saw major world powers like France and Germany suspending the use of AstraZeneca's COVID vaccine? Well, first reaction was that's really unfortunate because we'd like to get this vaccine out as quickly as possible to as many people as possible. And then right behind that reaction was, you know, I really hope that an investigation can be rapid and can demonstrate the the continued safety of the vaccine. It's not one we wanna pull out of the program and we don't wanna have at top of mind for people this idea that a vaccine was unsafe. So obviously we wanna find out if there are any safety issues, but just the fact that it's been going through another another safety review uh, means that people are gonna focus on that and remember that So as recently as a week ago, a few European leaders, including Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi, 
were publicly defending the safety of the AstraZeneca vaccine. What kind of public health risks do you think these mixed messages might create? It's interesting that you frame them as mixed messages. I mean, one of the one of the challenges um, throughout the pandemic and and in vaccine safety and vaccine acceptance before the pandemic is that the science evolves, right? We, you know, we don't know things, and then we try to learn them, and then we learn them, and then we continue to learn new things. And of course, the public hates that, right? They they don't like what looks like a flip flop or different messages, mixed messages coming from different sources. So. Yeah, this is really distressing to the public when one authority says um, this, this vaccine is safe, we stand behind the trial results, and at the same time, public health authorities in a different country are saying we're pausing rollout. Um, and that happens because you know, people are looking at different sets of data, right? The trial data looked very good. There's been a, an excellent safety profile so far with this vaccine, and yet other, other countries, other authorities are looking at events that have happened, that have happened to people who just received the vaccine, and making a different call about um, let's pause and, and do some more you know, in-depth investigation. So assuming that the European Medicines Agency recommends resuming the distribution of the AstraZeneca vaccine, what would your advice be for the countries who have to explain this whole saga? Like, how do you convince people that a vaccine is safe when you just implied that it might not be? Yeah, it's really hard to go back on um, on a pause. And it does, unfortunately, speak to just general you know, scientific literacy, scientific process literacy in the public, because these are very, very challenging concepts to explain. But I think the two core concepts that we hope we can get across when there's a resumption of the of the vaccine, assuming there is, um, you know, what what were these agencies looking for? Two things: biological plausibility. Right? Would it have made sense? Is there is there a mechanism by which this vaccine could have produced blood clots and low platelet counts? And were the rates that we saw in the people who received the vaccine different from background rates or baseline rates? Like I've already lost like three quarters of the public, right? And just in that one sentence. Um, but those are the those are the scientific concepts we need to get across, and we need to get across we need to get those across with analogy, you know, good infographics, good comparisons. You know, is was this more likely in this group than that group? translating big numbers in the millions to numbers that are easier for the human brain to wrap their mind around. And it's just gonna have to be consistent and repeated. It would also be great if some high profile folks, you know, said, I'm, I'm excited, I'm getting the AstraZeneca vaccine tomorrow. I'm, I looked at the data, I'm very confident about it. I'm getting it, my mom's getting it, my kid's getting it. Um, that's, I think that kind of endorsement will be helpful as well. So before any of this, or before this saga really began, the evidence supporting AstraZeneca's vaccine, I think it's fair to say, was maybe a little more complicated than the data we saw on other COVID-19 vaccines. There were variances in dosing, and, and the results presented had been pooled from a handful of different clinical trials. I was curious, do you think that might have planted the seeds of doubt before these sort of clotting safety fears really came to bear? That's a great question. You know, a year ago, I would have said absolutely not. But everyone's a whole lot more expert in vaccine trials than uh, than they were a year ago, and people care about those things. We now have these different characters in a story. You know, each vaccine sort of takes on a different um, a different character, and people do associate 
you know, both efficacy results and, uh, you know, sort of how the trials were done and these, these stories about stoppages and, and restarts, that may be baggage that AstraZeneca continues to carry that the other vaccines don't. Here in the U.S., uh, we saw some rare but serious allergic reactions to the first widely distributed vaccines. You know, those were the ones from Pfizer and Moderna. And yet that didn't lead to the kind of panic uh, that we're now seeing in Europe. What do you think went differently here? Well, you know, different reactions, different physical medical conditions, I think, have different valences. An allergic reaction sounds scary, but most of us sort of know what that looks like. We know that there are things like EpiPens. Uh, we know that that is likely to come up pretty soon after you administer the vaccine. So the idea that you have to sit for 15 or 30 minutes means we're likely to catch it at least or catch you <laughs> if you have a reaction and fall over. Blood clot sounds really scary, right? And it doesn't happen immediately following the vaccine. We can't have you sit for 30 minutes and see if that happens. Um, low platelet count, that sounds scary too. In this case, um, the cases under investigation, there were, there were some deaths. Um, we're gonna learn more today about whether those are possibly associated with the vaccine. But those are just, um, those are scarier events that sound more, that are more fatal, that sound more fatal, that you would worry about. So I think that's a big part of it. So this question is maybe a little premature since we're, we're kind of still in the thick of this, but I was curious, do you see a lesson to be taken from this situation in terms of public health, in terms of vaccine acceptance, and, and how you know we might manage situations like this as they quite likely may continue to happen You know, with, with more and more vaccines coming to bear and more people dose? Have we learned something um, about how to communicate risk without unnecessarily sowing fear? Well, I think the solution was actually embedded in your question. We have to prepare the public for the fact that this is going to happen. Um, and there was a little bit of that when I think in the US when the first two vaccines were submitted for emergency use authorization. But the, the fact that you're going to vaccinate millions of people, bad things are going to happen to those people after they get the vaccine. And we have ways to figure out if that's associated with the vaccine or not. And we will follow those safety protocols and procedures. It, it just has to be hammered home again and again and again, because the stories, the anecdotes are always going to be more uh, memorable for people. The physician in Florida who died, these cases in, in Norway. Um, and we have a harder story to tell about numbers and ratios and, and protocols and biological plausibility. We have to sort of inoculate people, right, for, uh, for the idea that, that this is going to happen and that we have ways to manage it. The challenge, I mean, this is, this is true for every vaccine we put out. Um, it's just everything sort of heightened with, with COVID for all the obvious reasons. I was I'm wondering, in, like in your personal life or your professional life, Allison, have you come across people that you know, family members maybe, who are vaccine hesitant or you know anti-vaccine, and, and how how have you how have you sort of dealt with that? So I'm a vaccine acceptance researcher. Have studied this for ten years, and I think most of my friends and family don't tell me when they're vaccine hesitant because <laughs> they know they're going to get the spiel. And I will say, with this vaccine, it also feels different. So mostly, I study parents and their decisions about vaccinating their kids. And I'm actually quite impatient with uh, refusal or, or hesitancy. Um, with this vaccine, I think we have to come with a little bit more humility and, and curiosity and respect about where people are with their decision. 
for all the obvious reasons we could have a whole nother podcast episode about, right? Um, historical distrust, structural racism in health, um, the fact that this vaccine, these vaccines were produced faster than vaccines have been in the past. So when I encounter either in the research or in my personal life, people saying, I'm gonna wait, or I have preferences for one vaccine over the other, um, I'm really trying to kind of be patient, hold space for that, meet them where they are, all the public health lingo, um, and, and trying to reframe for myself the idea that, yes, I would love it if everyone got vaccinated. My, the goal should be, I think, for public health or for a health system or a, or a county or a city, the goal should be that 100% of people were reached with the information and support they needed to make the decision that was right for them. That's very hard for me to admit that that's how I feel, but that's actually how I feel. And we need to recognize that different people are gonna need different kinds of information, support. Not everyone's gonna see a sign on the side of a bus and change their mind. Well, Allison, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Okay, folks, stop us if you've heard this one before. But a new treatment for Alzheimer's disease has shown promise in a small clinical trial, and now it's being studied in a much bigger one that would support FDA approval. A bunch of experts say this could be the drug that ends a two-decade drought for new Alzheimer's medicines, and a bunch of other experts say it looks poised to be yet another disappointment. So to fill in the Mad Libs, the company in question is Eli Lilly, and the drug is Denanumab, which is an intravenous medicine meant to knock out those toxic brain plaques called beta amyloid, um, which, as you probably know, are thought to play a role in the course of Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, and over the weekend, Lilly presented some detailed data from a phase two study in which patients who got Denanumab saw their Alzheimer's symptoms worsen at a slower rate than the ones who got a placebo. The study met its primary goal, which is a rarity in Alzheimer's research. And now Lilly is recruiting up to 1,500 more patients for a phase three trial meant to replicate that result on a much larger scale. So as we mentioned before, this this probably sounds at least somewhat familiar. And as is, has become typical of, of pieces of news like this, it kind of gets filtered through the very familiar bull case and bear case. So, you know, as Adam just mentioned, the trial was a success. It met its primary goal, which very rarely happens in Alzheimer's. And actually, very rarely are trials like this, a, a you know small but placebo-controlled study, rarely are they even run in Alzheimer's. So that is sort of an undisputed positive aspect of this story. But a lot of the words that sounded familiar there, amyloid, um, you know, slowing the worsening of symptoms rather than actually creating improvements for people, um, and, you know, the, the difference between the placebo group and the treatment group being significant, but also small enough to where you can debate whether it has an observable benefit in, in terms of like the clinical effects. All of that stuff, which we've heard from so many Alzheimer's trials in the past, all of that is present here. And so when you talk to experts about this, and Adam, I think you had the same experience, people who were skeptical of, you know, the last drug for which these things were true, remain skeptical of this one. And people who were encouraged by the last time we went through this experience are encouraged by this one as well. Yeah, Damien, you know, when I was reporting out this story and these data, uh, you know, we called lots of Alzheimer's experts. You know, I think I spoke to six different 
researchers, scientists, physicians, uh, you know, in reporting out the story. And it's true, you know, you you get the people who you know who kind of believe in this amyloid hypothesis, and and they look at these Lilly data and they see promise. They you know they see encouraging results. They believe that this is the way forward for Alzheimer's disease medicines. And then you talk to the people who just doubt it, who don't believe, you know, who don't believe that removing amyloid plaques from the brain are going to benefit people with Alzheimer's, that this just doesn't work. And so they look at the same data and they see doubt. They're skeptical. They don't they don't see this ending up in a positive way. The one thing that kind of breaks the deja vu for me personally is at least the clinical trials are changing. If you go back seven or eight years ago, the large-scale studies of amyloid treatments were enrolling what were basically all comers, people who had the observable symptoms of Alzheimer's. We came to understand that the actual like brain chemistry of these people is, is, is quite different. And so with each successive trial, the enrollment criteria for patients has gotten more strict. So, you know, it's patients who actually have amyloid in their brains. It's patients who are at the earlier stage of the disease and seem more likely to benefit. And so with this Lilly trial, we have kind of the, the most recent evolutionary form of that, where the patients had some amount of amyloid in their brains, but also some amount of another protein called tau and, and a sort of Goldilocks amount, not too much, but also not none, that theoretically makes them the ideal patients for this therapy. And so as we mentioned, the results... Were, were positive, you know, at least at the, at the headline, and people can debate that. But I think what is, I guess, a, a sign of progress is that we appear to be homing in on a population that, that might actually benefit from these drugs. So as we mentioned, Lily is enrolling a much larger study to replicate these results. And, and that study has pretty much the same design, just on a larger scale. So as to whether it ends up being, you know, I wouldn't I don't feel comfortable predicting whether it'll be positive or negative, but I feel like it will at least tell us something because we've established this hypothesis in a much cleaner and more rigorous way. So if Denanimab ends up failing, you know, it is what it is, but but at least I feel like we just have like a better scientific sense of what we're actually testing here rather than throwing stuff at a wall, which it sometimes felt like Alzheimer's research has done in the past. I think the issue of, you know, designing smarter clinical trials is great. And, and in this case, like you said, Lily, you know, it, it, you know, the analogy of Goldilocks is good, right? Because, you know, these patients are, they're not too hard. They're not too soft. They're right there in the middle. They're in this sweet spot where you think you can get this drug to work. You know, the problem there is that, you know, in the real world, how are you going to, how are you going to transfer or translate these data in, you know, from a clinical trial where everything is very well controlled and very well managed into the real world where everything gets messy, right? So, you know, for instance, with this Lilly trial, you know, you were, you know, you're, you're testing these patients for that tau protein, like you mentioned, Damien. Well, you know, that's just not done in the real world. You know, like that's, it's a very expensive, time consuming thing to do. It's just not done. So now you're going to have to start doing that and you're going to have to, eliminate a lot of patients. I mean, I think in if I remember correctly, you know, Eli Lilly had to screen eight patients for every one patient that it could enroll in this clinical trial. So, you know, you're you're clearly eliminating a lot of people who just wouldn't benefit. I think that's where it gets a little bit messy. Right. And the other familiar aspect of this is that it is kind of a hurry up and wait story. The larger study that will actually tell us um, more definitively whether this drug works, will not read out most likely until 2023 and, and maybe even the second half of that year. So everything we know about denanimab right now is pretty much what we're going to know uh, for about two years. 
And Damien, I feel like any time we talk about Alzheimer's, we have to mention aducanumab. That's Biogen's Alzheimer's drug. It's under review at the FDA right now. Very controversial. So what, if any, impact do you think these Lilly data have on aducanumab? I mean, similarly there, how how you were saying there are uh, sort of Hatfields and McCoys in amyloid who kind of already have their minds made up and every new piece of evidence only supports their priors. We're kind of at that situation with aducanumab as well in that, you know, I remember when Eli Lilly first announced these the top line results from this this trial in a press release. Biogen itself on a conference call said that it was supportive of aducanumab, which is to say the drugs are similar enough to where what we saw with denanumab only underlines their case for aducanumab. But I think, you know, we both know people who are very skeptical of aducanumab look at it completely the opposite way. They would say that if denanumab appears superior to Biogen's drug, then it actually makes aducanumab more likely to be rejected because the FDA could say, oh, there's a better treatment on the horizon. So I feel like, I mean, did did it move the needle in any objective way? Probably not. The only thing with certainty that I can say about this topic, just maybe to close out the discussion, is that we will be talking about Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's drugs on future podcasts. Finally this week, Adam has a modest proposal to improve the way biotech companies report clinical trial results. Yeah, Damien, so I'm going to file this under if I were king of biotech land, and this is what I would want to see happen. So here's my proposal. Every biotech company is required to disclose the results of a clinical trial in a standardized, transparent manner. So what I mean by that is, let's say you've got a press release. At the top of that press release, let's say in the headline or in the first paragraph, you need to describe in clear terms, one, the primary endpoint of the study, two, whether the drug being investigated achieved the exact primary endpoint with statistical significance. Damien, do you agree with me on this proposal? I mean, for my purposes, what I do for a living, this would be a godsend and save time and frustration uh, and I don't know, just the occasional insults to your intelligence that you get um, when drug companies disclose news on clinical trials. But, you know, but I'm not the only constituency at play. I was thinking that, you know, for for people who maybe do not read as many biotech press releases as you do, could you kind of explain to us what the state of play is now when it comes to trying to discern just what it is happened when a clinical trial results are announced? I think for me, I'm starting to see more and more companies. And, you know, these are kind of companies that are on the sort of the lower quality end of the biotech spectrum who are issuing press releases where, you know, it's clear that the study failed, but you really got to dig into the press release to to figure that out. And, you know, this became a kind of a discussion point on Twitter in the last few weeks. And there's a guy who's got a Twitter account and, and I'm going to give him credit here. It's he's at Kubico and he brought this up, right? He was, he said, you know, look, we really need to have some kind of standardized template for clinical trial readouts and the way companies announce those results. And I, and I agreed with him and that's why I I wanted to discuss it today. Like you said, Damien, there's some, there's some bad examples recently. Um, you know, there's a company that I've covered called Cytodyne and they've got a drug uh, that they're trying to, to develop for, for COVID and, you know, they had clinical trial results from a phase three study. And and here's the quote. Here's the quote that was way up high in the press release that was from the CEO. And he said, quote, we believe these results are the best results ever achieved for this population in a phase three clinical trial. Now, 
nowhere in the press release did it say that they met the primary endpoint. And guess what? They didn't. Their success and these greatest results were actually a uh, a subgroup of a subgroup of patients that were age adjusted. I mean, they did all kinds of like statistical gymnastics to get to what they said was positive results. They weren't. There's one other example, again, from a small company that I've never heard of actually called NeuroRx. I want to just quote from the press release because I love what they said at the top of the press release. And this is another COVID drug, uh, another clinical trial. And they said, quote, that their drug demonstrated multidimensional benefit around <laughs> its pre-specified primary endpoint, end quote. So I'm like, wait a second, multidimensional <laughs> benefit around? And sure enough, if you get like way down into the press release, you see that the study failed. Like, like we need to end that kind of stuff. Well, it's interesting. I was thinking about this because I sometimes see the other side of that, which are companies with, that are particularly transparent. I think very recently, I think just last week, the company Anaptis Bio um, had a drug that did not meet its primary endpoint in the trial. And the headline of the press release included the words did not meet primary endpoint, um, which is kind of refreshing and, and, and is sort of the clarity that we're asking for. But what I was thinking about is Aside from people, sort of a cognoscenti on Twitter, pointing out that a company like Anaptis Bio did that and, and sort of not congratulating them, but, you know, expressing respect for their candor, what is the carrot for companies? Like, what, like what is the inducement to be transparent the way Anaptis was? Because if you're Anaptis Bio or a company that chooses to be more honest, I mean, your stock's going to go down no matter what. Whether people on Twitter say, good on you for coming clean about it, you know what I mean? Like, is there a benefit? D does it incur sort of trust with investors and with the press if you come clean? Or, or is it kind of just like a mitzvah you can do in biotech world? I'm not naive enough to believe that, you know, companies are going to do this voluntarily. I, I do feel like, you know, there should be more oversight, more regulations. There should be some penalty for companies that don't. And I, I don't really know what mechanism that is. I don't know if that's kind of a, you know, something that the industry itself has a hope, like, you know, there's the, you know, the trade groups, there's the bio and pharma that, that maybe could push this idea on their member companies to like, hey, you really need to disclose results in, in, in a, in a more standardized way. Um, you know, you would hope that, given the fact that these companies are publicly traded that you know that the SEC or other regulators from on that level would get involved but we i think we all know that that's not happening and i think the fact is is that um there is so much of a laissez-faire attitude right now when it comes to regulations and regulatory aspects of of companies with the SEC and stuff that you know that i think companies realize that they have sort of a lot of free reign to do whatever they want and there's no real repercussions against you know, uh, against them if they're going to sort of play these kinds of games. And that and that's unfortunate. The reason that this issue is maybe more important now is I do feel like we're seeing more and more inexperienced investors getting involved in biotech. You know, there's a lot of attention to the sector right now, particularly with COVID um, and, and some, you know, gene therapies, things that are like having real impact on disease. And I think um, it's kind of capturing the minds and the attention of a lot more people out there who invest. They see these small companies making promises about diseases and drugs, um, and they want to invest in them, but they don't really understand how clinical trials work. They don't understand how the FDA works. And so these people, I think, are particularly vulnerable to these kinds of things. 
I think it's a reasonable proposal. I mean, the idea, as you mentioned, that there would be a rubric, you know, where it's like primary endpoint is blank, result was blank. I could see companies pushing back with the note that the simple fact of whether a drug met or whether a trial met its primary endpoint is not the whole story. And in, in many cases, that is true. I mean, we've seen drugs that fail in a given clinical trial, but you know, there's a breadcrumb trail that leads to a later successful one, and then they become approved medicines, and then we kind of never think about that little hiccup that happened before. But I think you could probably thread the needle. I think you could have this sort of, you know, nut graph or like bullet pointed what happened here and still leave room for the company to make its more nuanced case as to why the news isn't as bad uh, as you might think. But, you know, I agree with you. It's it's difficult to imagine what the, you know, what body would regulate this if it's something that a trade group could could all promise to do, which they occasionally do. Um, but it seems unlikely that, you know, the SEC would delve so deeply into this particular sector that it, that it regulates for publicly traded companies and demand that press releases go a certain way. I don't I don't really see that happening. So I'm putting this proposal out there, Damien, and uh, anyone can go run with it. And you don't even have to put my name on it. You can, you know, you can you can call whatever you want as long as it gets done. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Epinado and Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you support Adam's modest proposal. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week.